Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're glad you did today. If you get an opportunity, we'd really appreciate it if you head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or a review that helps future listeners know how much people dig us, and we'd appreciate it if you do that. This is episode number 113 of the next track. Today we're not going to talk about music so much, but the stuff that comes along with the music, or at least used to. Remember when you used to buy a record and it had lyrics inside? That since it was so hard to understand what people were singing sometimes, that you could actually see the words written down? It was great with Bob Dylan or or any kind of heavy metal where there's a lot of noise where you just couldn't hear the words. My first experience with liner notes and, and lyrics was when I was a very young person, four, five, six years old, and my mother would play records for me and my brothers, you know, to keep us passive and docile, much the same way people play, uh, you know, videos for their kids nowadays. And we would frequently listen to Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. Uh, my father had these recordings of the Doily Cart Opera Company, and these were the famous recordings made in the 50s. And these box sets came with the lyrics, and we would, you know, read them. So you could sing along. Right. I am the monarch of the sea. But anyway, what impressed me was that all of this information, and Gilbert and Sullivan wasn't the only place that had all of this all of this information, all these words to read about. But as a kid, I remember thinking that, look at all these jazz and classical albums that have so much information about them, you know, booklets and photographs and things like that, that they must be very important. And if I want to understand them, I have to read all the information that comes with it. Now, all that information, you just, you don't see that anymore. Well, back in the day, it was rare to find a record that didn't have a lot of writing, whether it be liner notes or lyrics or something else. I'm just thinking back to all the records that my parents had when I was young, and then they didn't have that many, but every single record had something on the back of it. Every single album, I remember a Pete Seeger record with lyrics. I remember, as you say, classical records where they've got a lot of explanation. By the way, I think that's one of the things that harms classical music, the fact that People are made to think that they have to understand the music and read a lot of stuff right. to get the music, whereas just let them put the music on and feel the emotion instead of having to read some essay by Gunther Schuller talking about you know how Mahler's interest in the pastoral inspired him to write the Knaben Wunderhafen songs. And You're obviously well acquainted with the technique. I've read books about things like that because I'm that kind of person. I have this huge two-volume, I'll put a link in the show notes, this two-volume book that Graham Johnson wrote a couple years ago about Schubert's leader. Graham Johnson is a pianist and accompanist, and he's the one who spearheaded Hyperion Records' landmark series of all the Schubert leader. And he wrote these copious liner notes that, remember when the liner notes in a CD were so thick that you couldn't get the booklet in and out of the thing? Yeah, you would eventually rend it to shreds because it would get stuck on those, what would you call them? The little indents. Yeah, yeah. the little guides there on, on the CD case, yeah. Well, he, he wrote such long liner notes and then expanded on them that Yale University Press released a two-volume book. I'm thinking it's about 1,500, 2,000 pages long. Now, I haven't read it, it's, but it's on a shelf, and it's there. And it's like one of these things I keep thinking is one day I'm going to sit down and spend six months with Schubert's leader. I'm going to get the book, and I'm going to listen. I'm going to read the lyrics and understand what they say. And, well, you know what happens when we keep putting off those big projects. Yep, yep, yep. One of these days... Um, the thing I remember about early LPs is that, 
it seemed like they were designed by the marketing department at the uh, the record companies. It wasn't until later that you know I think artists saw the record jacket and as an opportunity to be more creative. But I mean, I'm thinking of, for instance, the transition from like the Frank Sinatra sort of album where he looked really stylish on the front and then on the back it was all you know information about Frank. And then, or an early Beatles album, same thing, where you saw, you know, Meet the Beatles, and then the back was a, a, a lot of stuff about about the band, but it wasn't from the band. And then later, uh, it seems like, you know, these bands muscled in on the marketing department and saw it as an opportunity to, you know, to be more creative. Well, they had to fill up all that space, didn't they? Yeah, well, On sure. the back of the record. They were obliged to, yeah. And they'd either put a bunch of photos, which could be useful with the Beatles, you know, photos of them sitting around drinking tea and photos of them hiking in the wilderness and, you know, some some real-life type photos. And speaking of the Beatles, ironically, the White Album has no cover art whatsoever. You have to go inside to get all the... All the all the, the effluvia. The, yeah. the ephemera. The, the, the disjecta. And the thing is, it's like, I don't have that stuff anymore. I didn't think to hold on to it at all. Well, all that all that mattered most was the record. But it's true that sometimes you had a package... That was immersive. That was like an augmented reality type thing. And, and I think the best example for me was the original Thick as a Brick, that it was a gatefold album. When you opened it up, you unfolded this newspaper, which was about this kid who was the subject of the story behind Thick as a Brick. I can't remember his name, Gregory something. or And, and it was all a satire. It was kind of Monty Python-esque. But when you opened the album and you saw all that, you were entering a world. It was beyond the music. It was more than just... A handful of songs it was someone had taken the time to create all this and put it down on paper there's an interview with several of the band members on an edition of thick as a brick and they talk about who wrote the newspaper articles and they apparently several of them contributed to it but no one wanted to admit to actually really contributing to it it was sort of i don't know i might have uh that sort of thing they kind of blamed it on the manager writing all the silly stuff speaking of long immersive works i remember that the who's tommy came with all the lyrics in the album but then when quadrophenia came out it didn't it only had a couple of paragraphs sort of explaining some kind of story it didn't really match up with a lot of the things that were going on in, in the actual opera but um i remember being disappointed by not having a lot of this information in albums but that had the pretension of being an opera and of course by then operas had libretti and you would have all the information about what's happening you'd have the text in the original language and generally several translations if you bought the record in the u.s maybe they only had english but if you bought it in europe you had english french spanish italian german you know you had a number of languages and that was considered essential for people who wanted to listen to an opera yeah i agree that's a nice convenience to have when you especially when you can't understand the words otherwise I think also a lot of people would say, I don't understand the words that English-speaking people actually sing, and they that's why they like getting the lyric sheet. Although, maybe they should sing a little bit better. I mean, it, I don't think it would ever have occurred to Frank Sinatra to release a lyric sheet of on one of his albums. I mean, you can clearly understand what he's singing about. Yeah, but that's a different kind of singing. You listen to Bob Dylan, and, and what can be hard with Bob Dylan's lyrics is in part the way he sings and slurs, but also that the words he uses don't necessarily fit in the context of what you expect those words to be. When you hear one line, you don't expect the words that are coming in the second line, so it's useful to have the lyrics. And while I agree that Sinatra-esque addiction is a good example of fine quality singing, and Tony Bennett is another example, and Ray Charles even, 
would you really expect Howlin' Wolf to sing in a way that you can understand everything he's saying? Uh, no, I would expect that he wouldn't. Um, and, I, you know, I think the same thing is true for Mick Jagger and other pop singers. They are imitating that sound. And so you don't understand what they're singing either, although Mick Jagger is certainly educated enough to sing in a very clear way. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, we at the music store, we found this book called The Big Book of the Blues. It was a music book that had, oh, I don't know, several hundred blues songs in it and it was a revelation for us had the lyrics right yeah, it was yeah. one of those fake books yeah yeah and we just poured over that stuff to learn you know what are some of these blues songs really about it was a great book one of the coolest lyric inserts that i remember is the one from the clashes sandinista it was pretending to be a newspaper it was the armageddon times number three and it had the lyrics written in that sort of comic book type script but different writing for each song and some of them were little cartoons and w with a record like that where it, it was a lot of work to follow all the lyrics of some of those songs and, and i think it was really useful to have the lyrics as they were particularly because i wanted to be able to sing along to the magnificent seven they did that for london calling too the the lyrics were written on the uh, sleeves of the albums it was a double album so there's two sleeves um, they didn't do that for the CD that I'm aware of, but it's just as well because I spent so much time listening to the LP version and with the lyrics in my lap that I've, I've memorized the lyrics to all the, all the songs. And it's just as well because, quite frankly, if I heard Taking Off His Turban, they said, Is This Man a Jew? I don't remember any of those lyrics. That's the opening line from Clampdown. Um, if I heard that now, I would not have any clue what he's talking about. And, another, and the other funny thing is, too, in that song... Joe sings about, we will teach our twisted speech. And I'm like, Joe, twisted speech, get some, get some work done on those malocclusions, pal, because, uh, you know, his diction was not great. Yeah, the London Calling lyrics were on the inner sleeves of each record. They weren't inside the gatefold or they weren't an insert like the Sandinista was. But yeah, I remember reading those too and at least wanting to know what they're talking about. You know, if you think about it, we weren't in the UK. We weren't in London, and so there are a lot of things that I didn't know what they were talking about in the guns of Brixton. I had to look up where Brixton was in my Compton's encyclopedia back then. Watson, hand me the Compton's. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of stuff that you want to figure out, and the lyrics themselves will help, but not necessarily. Sometimes there's a word that, you know the way the British sometimes pronounce words that aren't anything like the way they're spelled. You might have a word, and you're don't know what it is and you want to look it up and you know most people probably didn't care about the lyrics i remember sometimes going to clubs in the early 80s and i didn't go to discos i went to the sort of new wave type dance clubs and people would sing along with some of the choruses but the same way they'd sing along with born to run when you're driving in a car and that kind of thing one of the things that i used to be confused about i guess i still am confused about is usually on a lyric sheet you say reprinted with the uh, permission of the of the publishing company and y you would think that you know that would be a, a normal thing to do but why do they need permission do you know how that that works at all well the record company has the rights to the performance and the recording the publishing company is in most cases different some record companies do publishing but any musician um who is not being totally screwed has a separate publishing company the publishing company gets the money from the original composer's performance, but also from any cover versions. 
So when Dylan wrote, Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, it was the Birds who released the record first. And Dylan made a ton of money off of the Birds recording, which was far more popular than his. And so that was the publishing arm. Now, I would assume that the publishing company would grant the rights to a record company for free and not charge them. It kind of makes sense because in the case that it's the artist whose record they're selling who wrote those lyrics, it makes sense. Maybe if it was someone else like Frank Sinatra, he didn't write any of his songs. Maybe there was a different kind of deal or a band that was doing a lot of cover songs. You must have had a lot of time to read lyrics when you were in radio. Well, uh, you had a lot of opportunities. And, and I remember, you know, you'd walk in on a, on a fellow DJ in the studio and they would invariably be, be standing there behind the mic with, the, with an album in the crux of their arm reading the back. And you'd always get a, uh, hey, did you know Sly and Robbie run his album? You know, things like that, because you'd scour it for information that maybe you didn't know, um, you know, copyright dates and publishing companies and strange studio musicians and things like that. It was more difficult to do it in the CD age because, like we discussed before, you didn't want to destroy the uh, the inner packaging of the CD, so that there was less of that. And plus, my eyesight got worse as I got older. Something similar to lyrics, you were talking about operas and libretti. There was one set of records that was released in the 1970s that actually even had scores. This was a set of box cantatas that was recorded on the Telefunken label. The collection was called Das Alte Werk. And they were conducted by Nicholas Harnoncourt and Gustav Leonhardt. And each of these, I believe there were two LP sets, each one of them had a booklet with the entire scores of the cantatas, the real scores. The Bach cantatas weren't well known in the 60s and the 70s. So imagine that you were a musician and you wanted to have this information. This was a boon because it was probably difficult to get a hold of these scores. Well, why would it be difficult? I mean, isn't it something you could just kind of look up in a catalog and, you know, send away for and, and, and get it in the mail? Well, back then you would have had to send to Germany. They were published by Breitkopf and Hertel in Wiesbaden, Germany. Now, I'm sure that if you were in New York or Boston or a big city, there would be a company that sold music scores that could get a hold of them for you. But if you weren't, if you were in Podunk, Iowa, um, sorry if anyone out there is in Podunk, Iowa, but getting a hold of an actual score for something like that means, as you say, you'd have to send away for it and it could be relatively expensive. Whereas here, these were just sort of bonus material that came with the sets. And it would be... Public domain? Is that stuff public domain? Well, no, they're not. So the, the way public domain works is that the music itself is, but the presentation of the music can be copyrighted. Because remember that someone has gone back to the original score and they have transcribed it and, and edited it. So their edited version would be copyright. Now, if it was edited in the 19th century and reproduced, like Dover reproduced scores for everything they could get their hands on, then technically it could be in the public domain. But you still couldn't photocopy the Dover score and sell it to someone else. You could, however, use that score for performance without paying. Because as you know, if something is copyright, you have to pay for all the parts that you're using, whether it's classical music, uh, Broadway musical, whatever. Whereas in this case, you could probably use the score to perform the music, but probably not record it. it that gets into a sticky situation. There was a record label whose name I won't mention, you can look it up. They kind of made a mistake some years ago releasing a CD of a score that someone had edited and saying, well, it's old music, it's public domain. And the court said, nope, this guy spent a lot of time editing this and this is his work and he owns the copyright. I guess when you put it in terms like that, that it was his work, that I, I guess I can go along with that. 
Yeah. So lyrics were one thing, newspapers, and there were all sorts of inserts, weren't there? What was inside Sergeant Pepper? Uh, it was a, a cardboard sheet of things that you could cut out. Like there was a mustache so that you could be, you know, look like Sergeant Pepper. And I think there were badges or medals or epaulets or something like that. Um, I don't think most people cut it up, though. Other records had interesting things sometimes. I remember postcards and stickers. I still have the guitar I bought in the late 1970s in the original case of Yamaha six-string acoustic. And on the top of the case is the sticker from Know Your Rights. Remember that song? Yes, it's the uh, first song on Combat Rock. First Night Back in London was the B-side. It was one of those great songs. It was, I think I bought the single actually before the album came out. I think the single might have been released as a, as a teaser in advance. There were lots of stickers and things back then, although I think stickers have become more common now as bonusy things that bands even sell. I don't remember ever buying a sticker at a concert. I got a sticker from a New Order album. I think it was Power, Corruption, and Lies. And it was just the words, New Order. And so I put it on my scooter. I was riding a motor scooter at the time. And uh, I don't really know what people thought of it. I mean, New Order wasn't very well known where I lived, so maybe they thought I was you know, bringing them a new order. Maybe they thought I was the... Uh, like you were a pizza delivery boy <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. I was delivering you, you their new order. You had a scooter, order. wow. Yeah, I didn't have a car, so I had the scooter. Okay. And uh, it was great where I lived because everything was everything was like within three miles of my house, so I only needed a scooter to get around. It was a lot of fun. I had a, a, ra a portable radio I bought attached to it and used to listen to that. It was a lot of fun. This is like the this is like the mods in, in the Who's Quadrophenia. Yeah. With their little, yeah, that, it wasn't a, was it that kind it of scooter? It wasn't a GS scooter or a uh, or or a Vespa, but it was it was a Yamaha. Actually, it was a Yamaha scooter. It was just a, like I said, very serviceable. Like enjoyed it a lot. Everything's Yamaha. I've got a Yamaha yeah. amp. I've got a Yamaha guitar. You had a Yamaha scooter. Okay, there there were some other cool things. I, I remember occasionally there were buttons and badges and stuff, but they would be wrapped somehow in the shrink wrap outside the record, and they'd be loose. They couldn't put them inside because that would damage the record. I have a couple of those from back in the day. I think I have a Clash button. I have a Derudi column button. There were a few of them. But things like that weren't common because of the space they took up. One of the more interesting effects on an album is the, is the working zipper on the Rolling Stones' Sticky Fingers, the first editions of which had an actual working zipper that went up and down. You opened it, and supposedly it was Mick Jagger. When you opened the pants on the cover uh there was a photograph of a man standing there in his white underwear so that was a very interesting thing who is this man with a cucumber in his pants well the the album cover was designed by uh andy warhol and i always thought it was uh joe delisandro but it, it which is one of the actors that used to be in andy warhol films but it could have been jagger i'm sure that's what he wanted us to think and, and that was one of the weirder records and, and you understand that they just wanted to do something to stand out. And I don't think it sold any more records. And, and I remember that people in record stores hated it because it would scratch the back of the records that were in front of it. So they didn't have to put it in a special place. But maybe that was the point. You had to put it up on a shelf instead of sticking it in a bin so you didn't damage anything. Well, it did generate a lot of talk at the time, but I don't know if it sold any more records. The record stands on its well, own. Well, I think the record sold itself. Yeah. Come on. I'm just looking at the track list here. Brown Sugar and Wild Horses and Bitch and Sister Morphine, Dead Flowers. Come on. If there is classical music from that period, this is classical music. Around the same time, actually, I guess it's before Sticky Fingers, was the Velvet Underground's album with the peel-off banana sticker. Which was also designed by Andy Warhol. He gets around. 
Yeah, he got a lot of work. Yeah, gets a lot of work. He did he have his own design company? Well, I guess he must have had his own design company. Yeah, I think what did they call it? The, the factory. factory. Yes. And did that in any way inspire Factory Records, I wonder? You know, I don't know, and I'd like to think not. Uh, about the only thing I know about Factory Records is from the movie 24-Hour Party People. Right. And articles on Tony Wilson here and there. I wouldn't be surprised if he had his own idea about what a factory was supposed to do as far as music goes. I think they had their own ideas. And speaking of Factory... They put out a lot of very interesting albums. Well, I, I think the most interesting cover is the very first album that Factory released, which is Return of the Derudy Column. It was sandpaper. The sleeve was sandpaper with the sand side out. Yeah, so it could rub up against your other albums. Exactly. And yet, you think of that, you think that the music is going to be really aggressive, but it wasn't. This is Vinnie Riley's really mellow, laconic, pastoral guitar work on that album. You know, it seems to me that Factory Records, they would come up with a concept for an album and then just do it. It didn't have to have anything to do with the music or the or, or the artists on it. And one that I remember was um, Blue Monday, the 12-inch sleeve was um, die-cut to look like a floppy disk. And it was so expensive to produce this that the 12-inch the actually lost money because they, it was just too expensive for them to continue doing. And they had several albums like that. Um and also, they would they would create posters and designs for advertisements that really didn't seem anything like the bands at all, just for the sake of creating something interesting or provocative. Yeah, they didn't necessarily have the look of a band. They more often had the look of the label, which wasn't that uncommon in that period, actually. I visited the Hacienda about a year ago. We were up in Manchester. We were staying in a hotel overnight to go to the theater. The Hacienda was right across from the hotel. The Hacienda was a dance club. Right. Built by Factory Records. Right. It's now an apartment building. But it has one of those blue plaques that they have on places in, in the UK of, you know, historic events. And I believe the historic event was that Morrissey sang here on a certain night, rather than that this was the Hacienda, you know, that everyone sang there. And, you know, Tony Wilson and all that. And Tony Wilson's apartment was just around the corner from it. It was literally 100 feet away. A friend of mine from Manchester took me there and showed it to me. But, yeah, the, the Hacienda was FAC 52. So they had a catalog number for everything they released. In fact, one was the first record, FAC 2, etc. And the Hacienda was FAC 52. I remember that. Another cover I remember that was really cool, and I think a lot of people forget these days, was the cover for Wish You Were Here. Not so much the cover... But the shrink wrap around it, do you remember that? Was it something about its translucency or something? No, the, the, the shrink wrap was dark blue. It was opaque, so you couldn't see the cover. But once you pulled it off, then the blueness was gone. It had a little sticker on it, just like in the top corner saying what it was. But once you pulled the shrink wrap off, then you see the cover. There was a band in the late 70s called Clark Kent. They spelled it with two Ks, Clark and Kent. And I think Stuart Copeland was the from the police was the original drummer. And I never owned this album, but I used to get a kick out of seeing it in the record store. It had a label on it that said something to the effect of, this album has been chemically treated such that when it comes in contact with oxygen, it will turn green. <laughs> and of course, when you opened it... It was green. It was green vinyl. Yeah. There may have been a joke about kryptonite, you know, Clark Kent, Superman, kryptonite. But uh, I don't know. It's just another crazy marketing thing. So where do we get this now? In one of my next track picks a few weeks ago, it was the reissued three CD version of John Fox's Metamatic. It came with a bunch of art cards, which are just basically little prints the size of the inside of the box. And one of them was signed, which was kind of cool. But other than that, 
what have I gotten? Gotten little buttons and pins and things and maybe some stickers, but I don't see very much often. Now, you don't get any of these with a single CD. You'll get lyrics maybe in minor notes, but you don't get anything else. So it's got to be a box of some sort to have additional material. Well, you need the physical thing in order to include physical things with it. Yeah. So, you know, there's no free prize inside with our record purchases anymore because we don't buy the physical thing. If you download songs and, and stream songs, you don't get anything. But we've got the Internet, and if you want information, there's Wikipedia and all kinds of music magazines and, and photo archives. If you want lyrics, which you're not really supposed to have, but you can go to plenty of lyric sites to get that stuff. Uh, there's plenty of, of mavens and fans that have you know sites dedicated to, to artists and, and the music that they play. If you want the stuff, you've usually got to go to the merch table at the show. Um, you know, even small club, even bands that play small clubs will have, a, you know, generally a merch table where you can buy their CDs or their cassettes, T-shirts, stickers, you know, get on mailing lists and that sort of thing. So we're not getting as much stuff um, as we used to forced on us. And I think another consideration is is the is the actual packaging of it and sending it. I mean, you know, it's easy when you're releasing an album, you can include things with it or a box set. But, you know, there's a lot of effort to, to, to go through to, to deliver that stuff to listeners. Well, maybe you can download a coupon when you download your files for your album and cut out some box tops and send it into the record label and get something back. But that's an awful lot of friction. Yeah, like I said, a, a lot of hoops. It is. And, and I don't see many people caring that much. I mean... What, what would you get? A sticker, a postcard, a button or something? Autograph photo. It, it wouldn't sell me on buying a record. However, some years ago, five, six years ago, there was a new edition of all of Roxy Music's studio albums. And apparently this was spearheaded by Phil Manzanera because when I bought it from the Roxy Music website, it came in a box set with a couple of pins and cards and stickers. And, and one of the cards was signed by Phil Manzanera. There's this little guitar pin, which was really cool. But that, of course, was because I bought the set, and it was in the set, it was in the box of the set. So I can't see today that a band says, right, well, you can download our album, and we'll send you this stuff, because do you really care about the stuff that much? Oh, another thing, too, is the expense. I didn't even think about that, but I mean, you know, you'd have to mail all that, you'd have to prepare it and, and send it out. And it's far more expensive to do it when you're not already delivering product. right. You weren't you weren't paying the postage to each individual person. It was just going in the the package that was being distributed, so it was a few cents. Yeah, we have lost out on all that, but again, this is as we've said so many times, the trade-offs between physical and digital lead to an abandonment of what made physical sometimes stand out. But on the other hand, when when we were doing research for this topic, we both looked online, we couldn't find a single article of look at all these great albums that had great stuff with them. We came up with a list of a dozen things that we could think of, but not that much. I mean, you were marked by the zipper on Sticky Fingers, and, and maybe I was marked by Sandinista and Thick as a Brick, but I don't remember that much. I mean, I remember lyrics, and I remember the occasional postcard, but nothing that stands out that makes me think, wow, this was so cool to have this. Well, it truly was ephemera. I mean, at the time, it was it seemed rather important, and it was interesting, and it was an interesting uh, way to, to start talking about the album, especially if, as far as marketing goes. But, I mean, seriously, how long are the Rolling Stones going to pay for zippers on album covers? It's just not going to happen. So a lot of this stuff has just fallen by the wayside. 
Just another way that things have changed. All right, now we are going to present our next tracks. Music that we're going to be listening to, or that we have been listening to, or that we want to be listening to more of. Kirk, what have you got? This week I've got some apps to talk about. These are iOS apps, and they're called Travis and Fripp, 1, 2, and 3. There are three different apps. Each one is three bucks. You can get the bundle for $7. These are designed by Peter Chilvers. I'll put a link in the show notes to the episode where we interviewed Peter. He works with Brian Eno, and he created the app for Reflection about a year and a half ago. These apps contain music by Theo Travis and Robert Fripp. Robert Fripp, you may know, plays guitar, and Theo Travis plays flute and saxophone. And... It's been kind of hard for me to understand exactly what's going on. And Peter sent me a couple of emails explaining what he did is he took a number of improvised tracks from performances. And each one of these apps has 16 tracks, about 45 minutes of music. They combine. So whenever you start playing, there's one random track by Robert Fripp and another random track by Theo Travis. What's interesting is that they combine in such a way that they sort of work. And I, I spent hours last night listening to one of them, and it's not like the Reflection app, which is a continuous generative musical experience based on loops. This is more like a Cajun thing, like if we throw this piece together with this piece, how will it sound? I maybe don't sound too enthusiastic, but there's some really beautiful music in here. It's just the concept is a little bit strange. I think if you just forget about the concept, actually, it's more interesting. There are some interesting visuals that Peter Chovers made, similar to Reflection, but not quite as as sophisticated. If you like Robert Fripp and that type of music in Eno, I recommend checking these out. Really, they're not that expensive. The music is interesting. Now, after I heard this, I went on to the Discipline Global Mobile Limited website. That's Robert Fripp's company. And there is a three-CD set of some concerts that Travis and Fripp did over the years. It's available for a mere 10 pounds, so I've ordered that. I'm actually, I never heard of Theo Travis before. I didn't know Fripp was doing these concerts. So I'm looking forward to hearing the music as it was actually performed live. But these apps give that kind of randomness to the music that has a certain amount of character to it. What about you, Doug? Last week I mentioned during our discussion of uh, B-sides, particularly singles, uh, that I had a promotional single from the Psychedelic Furs that had a uh, an imprinted flexi-disc on its jacket. Uh, that got me thinking about listening to the album that the single was from. It's Talk, Talk, Talk. I listened to this album a lot when it came out. It was, uh, I think, 1981, and I was doing college radio at the time. This this was their second album, and CBS really pushed this record. And now, at the time, post-punk British bands were the rage, and we were flooded with them. I mean, you had Duran Duran. You had everybody from Manchester. You had uh, uh, Susie and the Banshees and Echo and the Bunnymen and all of these people. Squeeze, Madness, all of these British bands. And uh, alternative college radio really uh, helped them along. So being in college radio, I remember the Psychedelic Furs were uh, a favorite um, among a lot of stations. This is the album with Pretty in Pink on it, although it has no relationship to the film, really, which came out five years later. John Hughes just liked the song and thought it would be a good idea for a movie. Every song on this album has a great pop sensibility. I don't know if you're familiar with their first album, but it's kind of gloomy. But this album has some uh, some more pop sense. One of the things I liked about the Psychedelic Furs is that they used a sax player who is very reminiscent of the way Andy McKay played sax for Roxy Music. And that is he kind of diddles in the background and he's not doing an American-style R&B. This, it's this more or less a British 
sort of thing where they play this counter lead and it, it's really kind of cool and i always associate richard butler's lead vocals with the the sax in uh, the psychedelic furs this album also has popular favorites no tears mr jones into you like a train and a whole bunch of them i liked every song on this record and I, it was one of those albums that i put into quarantine for a number of years because i had listened to it so much but i can't get these songs out of my head since mentioning them last week so i've been listening to the psychedelic furs talk 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 as my next track this has been the next track a podcast about how people listen to music today you can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.